Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. On today's program, we continue our current series in Romans, The Power of the Gospel, with Dr. John Newfeld. Looking at our passage in Romans chapter 7, verses 1 to 6, we'll begin with this message called, Dead to the Law. I wonder how you feel about the phrase, religious rules. If you have any memory of religious rules in your background, the chances are you don't have good feelings about them. I've met countless people who have told me they feel angry and wounded, even unresponsive to God because of religious rules that they now view as harmful. Years ago, I spent time with a group of rule-bound Christians in another country. They believed that it was sin for Christians to drive a car, but as it turns out, they were free to take a taxi anytime they wanted. These people were farmers, and they believed it was a sin to put rubber tires on your tractors, and they kicked people out of their church for buying rubber tires on their tractors. They believed it was wrong to hook up to electrical power, so power lines actually went through their villages, but none of them hooked up. Instead, they had generators that they all turned on at night, generating individual power to their houses. In short, hooking up to the power lines was taking power from the world. But buying the world's generator and filling it with the world's gasoline, I I guess that was okay with God. It was one of the craziest things I'd ever seen, like something out of a Monty Python movie, ridiculous and full of contradictions. But more than anything else, almost none of these people exhibited any joy. See, rule-bound living is joyless living, and it's constantly living with the weight of condemnation. But as outrageous as the example I've just given sounds, in many ways, religious rules that form the pattern of all of life find their way into Christian circles, and the victims are not just a few. Now, some of us have the same understanding of the Old Testament and especially the law. We think it's rule-bound religion, and we're thankful that Christ took the rules away, right? Well, Did he? Now, before we answer, let's consider some biblical passages that speak to this. It may be surprising to find some expressions like the following in the Bible. For instance, Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Later on in the same psalm, still speaking about the laws of God, David will say in verse 10, More to be desired are they, that is your laws, than gold. Even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. See, you may not be aware of it, but the longest psalm in the Bible is Psalm 119. It has 176 verses, and all of it is an anthem to delight in the law of God. And so, for example, listen to three verses from Psalm 119. Verse 18 says, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. And verse 97 says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And verse 165 says, Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Now, you might not know this, but those who loved God in the Old Testament found in the law not rule-bound religion, but a delight, a source of peace, and the outpouring of the wisdom from God that gives revival to a human life. Now, the reason I've begun today's program with this discussion is because in our study of Romans 5 to 8, we've come to Romans 7. And at the beginning of our study, I stated that we can view Romans 1 to 4 as the tree and Romans 5 to 8 as the fruit of the tree. See, Romans 1 to 4 gives us the heart of the gospel, and Romans 5 to 8 shows us the outcome of the gospel in all who believe, that is, its power. In other words, that's the fruit of the gospel. 
I also made note that all four chapters in this section is different. They offer a different kind of fruit. So Romans 5 shows us the fruit of peace with God. And Romans 6 shows us the fruit of the life of holiness, being dead to sin and alive to God. And Romans 7 shows us freedom. First, freedom from the law. And then later in the chapter, it shows us our captivity to the flesh, awaiting the answer to that bondage in chapter 8. But now let's start with our freedom from the law. Let's begin with Romans 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Now, before we go any further into the passage, it is imperative that we're crystal clear about what Paul means when he speaks of the law. So let's lay some groundwork. Paul begins by saying, I am speaking to those who know the law. Now, we do know that the Roman church at this time was made up of both Jews and Gentiles, and that Gentiles probably constituted the majority. And so it may surprise us to hear the Apostle Paul speaking to the whole church, Roman Christians included, as people who know the law. And yet he assumes that both Jews and Gentiles do have this knowledge. There are some basic reasons, I think, for that. Remember, at this time, there was no completed New Testament. And so believers were instructed not just from the law, but from the entire Old Testament, seeing in Jesus the interpretive key to what they were reading. So I assume from that, that knowledge of the law was an essential part of basic Christian training in the early church. And if that's so, one has to assume that the law was in some sense— We're not saying how yet, but in some sense, a deeply significant part of every Christian's life. So when we speak of the law, we can define it in at least six different ways. So hang on, I'm going to do that. First, we can use the word law to speak of the first five books of the Bible. The Jews called this the Torah. They're the writings of Moses, the biblical books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The word law can simply be a shorthand for those five books. Now today, some poorly informed Christians think of the term law, that it can refer to the entirety of the Old Testament, but that's a mistake. So please don't think that when the Bible says that we are freed from the law, that it means that we don't have to pay attention to the Old Testament. Now second, sometimes the word law simply functions in a way that speaks of Israel's national constitution. You can't have a nation without laws, and Israel's law gave her a national identity and established her as a theocracy. That is, she was a nation who was governed by God. Now, used in this way, the law can teach us about who God is and what justice is, but it can't be reproduced anywhere or in a Gentile society. So, in one sense, it's given uniquely to Israel, but it is a learning tool for others. Third, Sometimes the word law is simply shorthand for the Ten Commandments. Now, used in that way, the law tells us what is ultimately important, that the things that matter most are first, that we love God, and then secondly, that we love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, the first four of the Ten Commandments teach us how to love God, and the last six teach us how to love our neighbor. Everything else in the law, that is, in those five books, is a specific outworking of that principle in the national life of Israel. 
Now, fourth, sometimes the word law is used as a description of righteousness. A thought of in that way, the law declares the righteousness of God, and it also declares what it is for us to be righteous as he is righteous. And fifth, Sometimes the word law is used to describe the sacrificial temple ritual of sacrifices and offerings. And finally, sixth, sometimes, although not always, but sometimes when the law is spoken of, mostly negatively, Paul uses the word law as a, another kind of a shorthand. And here he uses it to speak about how the Pharisees mishandled the law. Because the Pharisees were recognized as teachers of the law, their misguided interpretation led many to believe that law-keeping was a means of obtaining merit before God. Or let's see if I can say that more simply. According to the Pharisees, law-keeping earned your way to heaven. Now, and this is the key. That's not what the first five books of the Bible taught. But that is what the Pharisees taught. And so in the New Testament, we find some references to the law as a way of saying, This is what the Pharisees teach. So I hope you can see the difficulty. If Romans 7 teaches us that we have been released or set free from the law, what exactly does that mean? Does it mean, as some think, that we don't have to pay attention to the Old Testament commandments? Or does it mean the Old Testament is passé? Or does it mean that we don't have to eat kosher or sacrifice animals anymore? Or does it mean that we've been freed from earning our way to heaven? So let's read Romans 7, 1 to 3. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, that we may bear fruit for God. End of passage. And when we come back, we're going to explain that and hopefully show just how free we now are in Christ. True Christianity is not about keeping the rules. We're not bound by the do's and don'ts. Legalism has no place in our faith, and thankfully so. Yet we're beginning to see that freedom from the law is not quite as simple as just being free from following the commands. We must have a balanced perspective of the law if we're to pursue a life of holiness. And when we return, Dr. Neufeld will help us get there. Thanks for listening today. And you know, we hope you've benefited from this series on Romans chapter 5 to 8 so far. This is actually a continuation of our previous series called The Heart of the Gospel, which focused on the first four chapters of Romans. Over the next few weeks, Dr. Neufeld helps us understand the rich theological lessons on sin, the law, the gospel, living in the spirit, and much more. And there's still more great teaching to come. We want to offer you a chance to get a copy of the Power of the Gospel series on CD this month for just $35, which includes shipping and handling. So just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us on backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. The Bible says we have died to the law. Let me try to spell this out. 
That means at least four things. First, we are free from the law as a Jewish way of life. For instance, in the early church, a great struggle was enjoined as to whether Gentiles should be required to be circumcised, and the answer was no. Every once in a while, you know, as a pastor, I would have a mom or dad ask me, should we circumcise our son? And the answer is, talk to your doctor and not to me. That's a medical question, not a spiritual question. It has nothing to do with your faith. You have died to all the Jewish distinctions of the law, be that circumcision of boys, be that Jewish dietary laws, or the command to keep Jewish feast days, or the command not to clip the edges of your beard. If you're a man and want to clip your beard, have at it. You're free to choose, and that includes piercings and tattoos and makeup, and whether you want to go vegetarian, you have freedom. Second, we're free from the law's condemnation. Verse 4 tells us that we don't belong to the law, we belong to Christ. Yes, the law condemned all manner of transgressions, and if you know the law, you'll know that whole chapters are written describing what are called the curses of the law, the curses that come to anyone who fails to keep the whole law. And this is key. All the curses of the law fell upon the body of Christ as he hung on the tree. He, that is Jesus, has taken the curse on himself. That's why Galatians 3, 13 to 14 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So practically, what does that mean? It means that I never have to fear that my sin will bring the law's curse on me. I have died to the curse of the law. Third, we are free from the law as a pathway to forgiveness. In Romans 3.28, Paul wrote, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, this is the key. You can't get righteousness or right standing before God by keeping God's laws. In fact, the law was never, did I say never? Let me say it again. Never, never a pathway to forgiveness. Now, I know that some of you will say, but didn't people in the Old Testament get forgiven by offering sacrifices in the temple, just as we are forgiven in the New Testament through the sacrifice of Jesus? And the answer is, no, that didn't happen. Hebrews 10, 3-4 says, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So then you might ask, what happened in the Old Testament sacrificial system? I think H. H. Rowley put it well when he said, the law is much concerned with involuntary acts and ritual uncleanness where no ethical considerations were involved. Let me put it another way. There were in the law two types of sin. One was what was called an unintentional sin. It was something you did, breaking one of the fine points of the law without knowing that you'd done it. The other was called a high-handed sin. It's a sin done with a raised fist towards God, and those sins demanded stoning or being banished from the community or other things. So when King David committed adultery and murdered his mistress's husband, this is what he said, and I'm reading from Psalm 51. He said, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. So David said, to get forgiven the big stuff, there is nothing in the temple for me to do. And so all David could do was to appeal to God's mercy. 
But how could a righteous God whose righteousness is defined in the law forgive David? Well, David wouldn't have known that, but later when Christ came, we finally understand how it was that David was forgiven. So let's get practical. The law can point out your sins. It, however, comes with no power at all to drive those sins from you. It can condemn you, but it can't heal you. It can show you in grand vivid detail, as it should, why you've lost your way, but that's where it stops. What you need is reconciliation. How many of us have condemned ourselves for our sins, which would be fine if it led us to the throne of grace where we would find mercy? But instead, we've assumed that if we only tell ourselves to do better, God will look upon our contrition and have mercy. Listen, my dear friend, the only reason, can I say that again? The only reason God would have mercy is not the state of your contrition, but it is the state of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. So let's review. We are released from the law as a Jewish way of life. Second, we're released from the law's condemnation, for Christ was condemned for us. Third, we are free from the law as a pathway to forgiveness. And now fourth, we are released from the law as a pathway to holiness. Listen carefully to Romans 7, 5, and 6. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. I wonder if you're aware of how earth-shattering this is. All the law can do is arouse our sinful passions. The more the law said, don't do that, the more everything in us just kept straining at things until we transgressed the law and heard its thundering message of condemnation. But just like a man or a woman whose spouse has died and so is released from the law of marriage, so we died with Christ and are released from the law as a pathway to holiness. So if you want to be more like Christ and grow in holiness, then your task is to begin to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit and not the voice of the law. See, but here we might be confused. The law said, you shall not commit adultery. Are we now free to commit adultery? Of course not. But we grow in holiness by learning to serve in a new way, says Paul. And that is the way of the Spirit. See, I'm tempted here to explain exactly what Paul meant when he said, by way of the Spirit. But as we will see when we get to chapter 8, Paul will explain that in great detail. But just so that I don't leave you hanging on on this important principle upon which your entire growth into holiness depends, let me at least say this. No believer wants to say yes to sin, but we sometimes do sin. We do because our will is overpowered by the flesh and the commands of God serve only to excite the flesh to rebel. And so we fight against sin. Good. But you'll continue to lose that fight until you learn to rely on the Holy Spirit and not on your willpower. So back to Romans 6.14 where Paul said, For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. And that means you are not under condemnation but under the mercy and the loving kindness of God. Do you see that? Some of you still believe that you are saved by grace through faith and then grow in holiness by law keeping. But listen, 
The way you get free from the power of enslavement to sin is not by law-keeping, but by the grace of God and the grace or the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, we're free from the law, but does that mean we don't have to keep the Ten Commandments? You see, I fear that some Christians know just enough of the Bible to be dangerous. I'm free from the law, they shout, and therefore no one has the right to tell me what to do. The psalmist may have said, how I love your law, but they shout, how I hate your law. And practically, you know what that means? These people know nothing about the growth into holiness. Holiness comes only by the Holy Spirit, and that's why for many believers, Romans 8 has become the doorway into the pathway of the life of the Spirit. And then verse 7 then ends by saying this, What then shall we say? Is the law sin? By no means. When the law says, do not commit adultery, that's exactly what we should do. We'll learn more about that as we continue to trace through this important line of thought in our future studies. John, thanks for today's message. But help me make something clear. Do we have to abide by the Ten Commandments or not? Yes, we do. The Ten Commandments are God's desire for our lives, and they do become for us a standard of holiness and righteousness. But we don't keep them in the old way, but we keep them in the new way of the Spirit. That's, I think, the point that I was trying to make. Um, And then also to say that there were things in the Old Testament that are meant specifically for the life of Israel and are not to be applied to our own lives. And if you wonder about which to apply and which not, then just read your New Testament because your New Testament will make plain which ones to keep and which one not. It, It is actually not that hard to do in the end. Today, I hope you have a better understanding of how Christ's sacrifice has truly made us dead to the law. Dr. Newfeld has given us a great overview of how we're to grasp the significance and role of the law in our faith. We're no longer bound to the law as a way to get to heaven, yet Paul reminds us that the law serves to point us to Christ and to the Holy Spirit who enables us to live a life of holiness. Well, this has been an insightful and practical lesson, and we'll continue to unpack Romans 7 tomorrow as Dr. Newfeld teaches on the life of sin. Back to the Bible Canada leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. In the midst of an increasingly secular society, generations of people in this country are growing up without any awareness of the God of the Bible. The predominant worldview instead encourages them to look to themselves and humanity for the ultimate answers, not God himself. As Christians, we may often feel discouraged to see our world heading in this direction, but there is hope. That's what we believe at Back to the Bible Canada, and it's why we're determined to speak into and touch more lives for the kingdom in 2016. We believe and we know that it's only through faithfulness to God's Word that people of all backgrounds will come to know the truth. Here's an example of the kind of impact this program is having in their lives. Rachel wrote, Thank you for blessing my life with your program. You've allowed me to gain a relationship with God that I'm trusting in. I'm not sure where I would have obtained this if it weren't for you. Such a wonderful testimony and a blessing to be able to speak into her life. Did you know that you can play a part in helping listeners like Rachel while we're depending upon your support to carry out our renewed vision for 2016 and beyond? If you believe in the importance of this ministry, 
please consider a gift today. We'd be so grateful with either a one-time donation or joining our monthly partnership, our Partner to Tell campaign. You can donate online at backtothebible.ca or call us today at 1-800-663-2425.